Now, as we come to chapter 43, we see here God created and redeemed Israel, and he will yet choose and restore them. Now, this section of Scripture, this particular chapter, as well as this entire section here, reveals that God is not through with the nation Israel. And for anyone today to say that God is through with the nation Israel, they are making a statement that in my book is tantamount to unbelief. It means to deny that God has no further purpose with the nation Israel. And Paul asks the question, Hath God cast away his people? And the answer is, God forbid. Now, that's scriptural answer, not mine, by the way. And it's a very dogmatic answer. I agree with that. And so, God is not through with these folk, as he's made it very clear in this chapter. Now, we'll see that. I've divided this chapter in two very simple divisions. The first 12 verses, retrospect. We have here creation, redemption, and preservation of the nation Israel. Then in the last section, verses 13 through 28, we have prospect. And here is judgment and deliverance and redemption of Israel in the future. Now, let's take the backward look first. Verse 1, "...but now..." Thus saith the Lord that created thee, O Jacob, and he that formed thee, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed thee, I have called thee by thy name, thou art mine. Now, that is about as clear-cut statement as could possibly be made, because God addresses the nation Israel in this entire chapter, in fact, this entire section. And I do not think that you can misunderstand that unless you deliberately just want to. And he speaks of their origin. He says, I created you, O Jacob. He took old Jacob, and Jacob actually means crooked, by the way, and that's what he was, a supplanter, and made a nation out of it. And may I say that God took a rib from Adam and made a lovely woman. And God took the dust of the ground, breathed into it the spirit of life, made a human being. And that human being rebelled. And God now makes sons of God out of those that will trust Christ. That's my beginning. It's a very bad beginning. I don't buy the evolutionary theory that I came from a monkey, but I came from something worse than a monkey, a lost, rebellious sinner that had been taken on the physical side. The material was taken out of the ground. Dust thou art, the dust shalt thou return. But God had breathed into that man the spirit, the breath of life. But that man now has a fallen nature, and that fallen nature will never be reformed or repaired. God's in the business of giving a new nature. Now, will you notice as we move on in this? And so, 
God took a sad specimen like Jacob and he created a nation. Now God redeemed them by blood and power from Egypt. And they became Israel a prince with God. They belonged to God because of creation and because of redemption. Now, he says, "...when thou passest through the waters, I'll be with thee, and through the rivers they shall not overflow thee. When thou walkest through the fire, thou shalt not be burned, neither shall the flame kindle upon thee." Now, this is a promise which specifically applies to Israel in the manner in which God has definitely delivered them in the past when they crossed through the Red Sea and later on the River Jordan. But it has a marvelous application for all of God's children in all time. And here is a wonderful passage of Scripture. We've had this before us at another time. And here, when you pass through the waters, now there are those that sing, Safe am I, safe am I, I'm on the rock, and I'm safe. Well, that's great. Now, I go along with that. I say amen to that. But friends, I do not know about you, but sometimes in my experience, I find out I get in deep water and I can't touch bottom. (laughs) What do you do in a case like that? Well, this is a marvelous verse. He says, when you pass through the waters and through the rivers, they're not going to overflow you. I think sometime I'm going to drown, by the way. But God intervenes and he delivers. And that's when I need him, friends. When I'm, you know, sitting in the sunshine on top of the rock, I can sing rock of ages cleft for me. Well, that's great. But how about that time when I get in the waters and I can't touch bottom? Well, he says, that's when I'm going to be with you. And I'm going to see to it that you won't drown. And that's what he said to the nation Israel. Now, if the nation Israel can disappear from the earth, and I'll be honest with you, probably you ought not to rest in your salvation because I don't think it would be reliable. But you can rest in it because God's going to do two things, one for them, one for us. Now, he goes on in verse 3, For I am the Lord thy God, the Holy One of Israel, thy Savior. I gave Egypt for thy ransom, Ethiopia and Seba for thee. Now, when he says he gave these nations for a ransom, that seems to contradict Scripture, because God doesn't do that sort of thing according to our way of looking at it. But have you ever noticed that God says that these nations that I use to discipline you, I will judge those nations. I permitted them to treat you as they did, and now I will judge them. And that's what he means when he says here he gave them. And you find that in Proverbs twenty-one eighteen: The wicked shall be a ransom for the righteous and the transgressor for the upright. Do you know why God permitted that enemy to cross your pathway and cause you all the trouble that he did? And you often wondered why God did it in order to bring you into line, in order to develop you, my friend. God gave him for your deliverance. And that's the way that he does these things. And we're told here in Proverbs 11, 8, 
The righteous is delivered out of trouble, and the wicked cometh in his stead, takes his place. And I've observed this. God has let several people really mistreat me. I'll be honest with you. I've talked to him about it because I thought he was wrong. But now I notice the Lord is paddling these individuals, and I must confess I'm rather satisfied. And I see now what he means here, that he intends to do it just that way. And it did something for me, by the way. Verse 4, "...since thou wast precious in my sight, thou hast been honorable, and I have loved thee, therefore will I give men for thee and people for thy life." You can't imagine today how precious you are to God. And you do not know how much He really loves you. How wonderful this is. And here God says in verse 5, Fear not, I am with thee. I will bring thy seed from the east and gather thee from the west. I will say to the north, Give up to the south, keep not back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. God states here in clear-cut language that he'll regather the nation Israel. And in Jeremiah 31.10, he reaffirms this. And there he says, Hear the word of the Lord, O ye nations, and declare it in the isles afar off, and say, He that scattered Israel will gather him and keep him, as a shepherd doth his flock. God says, Hear the word of the Lord, O ye nation. And what he means is this, Hear the word, O ye liberals. Hear the word of the Lord, O ye amillennialists. Hear the word of the Lord, O ye postmillennialists. And he says it, Hear the word of the Lord, O ye premillennialists. Some of you that haven't been quite sure whether God's through with Israel. God says, listen to him. God has said this. And I do not care what circumstances might be or how the world situation is or what you might think of the people. God says that he intends to regather them. And we have his word for it. Now, will you notice here in verse 10, I drop down there. He says, "Gear my witness, saith the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that ye may know and believe me, and understand that I am he before me, there was no God formed, neither shall there be after me. God has no competitor, no equal. He alone is God. He has a unique position. Verse 11, I, even I, I am the Lord, and beside me there is no Savior. Isn't it interesting in all the religions of the world they do not guarantee salvation to anyone. They put down quite a program, but they certainly do not guarantee salvation. God says, beside me there's no Savior. Now, he moves on here in a very wonderful way, and now he opens up the great subject of idolatry. I have declared and have saved and I've showed when there was no strange God among you, therefore ye are my witness, saith the Lord, that I am God. He says here to them, he says, As long as you will not go into idolatry and turn away into that which leads you away from God, God says, I will bless you. 
Now, I'm going to drop down to this next section now, beginning with verses 13 through 28. And I'm going to drop down and begin at verse 15. He says, "...I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King." Now, I think it's inescapable here that the nation Israel is the subject. And God takes responsibility for bringing them into existence. And let every anti-Semite mark that down. God takes responsibility for bringing them in existence. He's their king. And may I say that this is here an affirmation of the deity of Christ. The Lord is their king. And when the Lord Jesus came and put down his claim to kingship, they knew that he was claiming to be Emmanuel, God with us. The instructed Israelite understood that. And so we have this section here that deals with the fact that God claims them because he is the creator of them. Then he speaks of the fact that even the beasts of the field honor him and the dragons and the owls. I have a notion that even the animal world is probably a little more conscious of God than his creature man who has fallen into sin. Now, he says here in verse 25, "...I, even I, am he that blotteth out thy transgression for mine own sake." And I'll not remember thy sins. What God is saying here, that he intends to forgive them on the same basis that he has forgiven us. And now we drop down here to verse 27. Thy first father hath sinned, and thy teachers have transgressed against me. And then in verse 28, and by the way, that I think is a reference to Abraham. Therefore, I have profaned the princes of the sanctuary and have given Jacob to the curse and Israel to reproaches. Now, that's the present condition of that nation. They're not in peace today. And why? Because they have departed from the living and true God. Now, chapter 44 is a marvelous chapter. We have here the pouring out of the Spirit and a satirical denunciation of idolatry and the identification of Cyrus here. We have the promise of the Spirit in the first eight verses, and I'm just going to lift that out now rather hurriedly. God says here in verse 3, "...for I will pour water upon him that is thirsty and floods upon the dry ground." I will pour my Spirit upon thy seed and my blessing upon thine offspring. Now, I think this is the reference to the pouring out of the Spirit, which corresponds to the passage in Joel, the second chapter, 28 through 32. Now, if you read that very carefully, you will find it was not fulfilled on the day of Pentecost, because when Peter quoted from it, he did two things. He said, first of all, this is that. He didn't say it was fulfillment, but this is similar to that. In other words, they were ridiculing it, making fun of these men and saying they were filled with new wine instead of the Holy Spirit. Now, he says, this ought not to amaze you because this is similar to what will take place in the last days. 
Now, how do you know it wasn't fulfilled on Pentecost? Several reasons. He says, "...and I will show wonders in the heaven and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon to blood." And Peter quoted all of it, and that didn't take place on the day of Pentecost. I'd know of no one that makes that claim. And then he says here, "...the Spirit was not poured out on all flesh at Pentecost." Here it's all flesh. There were only 120, and then there were 3,000, but never all. And after 1,900 years, it's still not all. There probably were a half a million to a million people in Jerusalem at that time. By no stretch of the imagination can you say it was a fulfillment of Joel's prophecy. But it's coming, friends. That's the day is coming. It's the reason I continue to say the greatest days for God are in the future. Now, in verse 9 through 20, we have a brilliant polemic against idolatry here. And it's devastating the way that he deals with it here. He says, verse 9, "...they that make a graven image are all of them vanity. Their delectable things shall not profit." And they are their own witnesses. They see not nor know that they may be ashamed. This is a brilliant satire now against idolatry. Those who make images, they are witnesses to the senseless character of their gods. One idol can't see and he can't talk. Paul called them nothings, for that's what they are. They're no help at all. Now, verse 10. Notice this. Who hath formed a god, a molten, a graven image that is profitable for nothing? Well, you spend all your time making your god, and he says you ought to be ashamed. Because actually, you got it mixed up. You don't make god, god makes you. And he goes on to describe it in verse 12. The smith with the tongs worketh with the coals, and all of the labor and talent and time and money that goes in to making a god. And after all, what do you get? Well, you don't get anything but just a little beautiful nothing, by the way. And the origin of a man-made god begins in the forest, and it's God who made the tree to begin with. Only God can make a tree. Now, he says, you take the chips that are left over and the surplus of the tree, you make a fire and warm yourself and cook your bread. Well, that's very nice, by the way. That's helpful. But that old image you made, that's no good to you at all. Why, the idol is no good. He can't warm you. He can't cook your food. He can't help you. He can't save you. He can't do anything for you. This is calling Israel's attention to how absurd it is. And my friend today... Many of us give ourselves to those things that take us from God, and they don't help us. They don't lift us. They don't bring joy to us, and they never can save us. Now, in the last section here, we have this man Cyrus. The last verse says, "...that saith of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and shall perform all my pleasure." I personally believe that verse should be put with the next chapter as we're going to see next time because this man Cyrus is marked out here long before he was even born into the world. He came out of the east. All right, we'll leave off there.
And so until next time, may God richly bless you, my beloved. Now, friends, we pick up today in the 45th chapter of Isaiah, and we are looking at a very wonderful section, as we indicated last time. Now, we have in chapter 45 the identification of Cyrus and the creation of the material universe and the salvation of Israel. Now, these are the themes that we've had in the last few chapters, with the exception, of course, of the identification of Cyrus. And so, in the first six verses, we have the calling of Cyrus before he was born. And actually, this chapter begins with the last verse of the last chapter, that is, of chapter 44. And we've seen this in another place where a last verse of a chapter should have been put into the following one. And you will find that in the New Testament in several places. And I'm sure you understand that chapter divisions and verse divisions were made by man. It is said that Stephanus, a monk in the Middle Ages, that he marked off the chapters by riding a donkey through the Alps. And every time that the donkey would come to a halt, why, he'd come forward with his pen, that'd be a mark of a chapter. Well, of course, that is a fable, but it looks like in places that that's the way it was divided. I get the impression sometime that maybe the donkey divided some of them, because they certainly shouldn't be divided where they are. And this is one occasion. And verse 28 now of the last chapter reads like this, "...that saith of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and shall perform all my pleasure, even saying to Jerusalem, Thou shalt be built, and to the temple thy foundation shall be laid." Now, this man is marked out here two centuries before he was born. And somebody is going to say, well, why would he be marked out by name? Well, very frankly, I think for two reasons. And, of course, primarily it was for identification, that when he did appear, that there'd be no misunderstanding who he was talking about. And then... Another one of the primary reasons, of course, is that this man is the man that made the decree that returned the nation Israel back to the land, and that's all important. And then there is another reason. I give it last because actually I'm not sure but what it should be first. And that is that Isaiah is going to identify one born of a virgin, and he'll be unique. And he's to be called Emmanuel, he'll be God with us. Now, if in 200 years Isaiah's going to be accurate about Cyrus, then may I say to you, when we move down about 700 years later, that is, from Isaiah, and he identifies the coming of the Messiah then people will not be too startled. At least they should be prepared for it, because Isaiah was accustomed to do this type of thing. 
So you can see there are good, reasonable reasons of why this man is marked out by name. And God says here, God calls him my shepherd, and he'll perform my pleasure, and he's going to rebuild Jerusalem. Now, God used the Assyrian to take the northern kingdom into captivity. He used Babylon to destroy Jerusalem and take the southern kingdom into captivity. But they were wicked men, and God judged them for it. But this man Cyrus is different. He's my shepherd, and he'll perform all my pleasure. I think there are going to be two things that are going to be a surprise to all of us when we get to heaven someday. The first thing that's going to surprise us will be the people that got there that you and I didn't believe would make it. And I think Cyrus was going to be there. The second thing that's going to surprise us is going to be the sum of the folk that we thought was going to be there, and they won't be there. I think we are in for two big surprises when we get to heaven. I just hope you and I are there, and we will be there on one condition, whether Christ is our Savior today. Now, God calls this man his shepherd. He does my pleasure, and not my will, but my pleasure. That's a little different, my friend. After all, Nebuchadnezzar did the will of God. He destroyed Jerusalem. And I think in time, Nebuchadnezzar came to a knowledge of the living God under the ministry of Daniel. And that was over a period of years. Now let's come to chapter 45 and verse 1 reads, Thus saith the Lord to his anointed to Cyrus, whose right hand I have holden, to subdue nations before him, and I will loose the loins of kings to open before him the two-leaved gates, and the gates shall not be shut. Now, this is a remarkable prophecy that took place. Now, Cyrus did not appear on the stage of history until 200 years after Isaiah. And he came out of the east, way yonder in Persia. And they have discovered today his monument, that is, actually, grave marker. And you can't read it. I have it on a slide. And you can't read it without recognizing here is an humble man who was trusting God. You see, most of these rulers of the past are the biggest braggarts that you can imagine, and most of them are liars. You have to take everything they say with a grain of salt. They tell you how big and great they were. They're sort of like modern politicians, you know. And so they cannot be trusted. But this man, Cyrus, he makes no great claim at all. And yet, he conquered the world. Yet, you do not hear him boasting of that at all. Now, we find here that this man is God's anointed. And that, my friend, applies only to the Lord Jesus. But God called him that. Why? Because he delivered. He carried out the will of God. And he delivered them from captivity, and he permitted them to return to the land of promise. And he also encouraged them, those that didn't go, to send rich gifts of gold, silver, and precious things with those that returned. 
And in that respect, he was a Gentile Messiah of Israel and a vague foreshadowing of the one who was to come. Now, what is the two-leaved gates here? Well, I think those were the gates of Babylon, which shut Israel out from returning to Palestine. He opened up and said, they can walk out, they can go. Now, that makes this a remarkable section, by the way. Now you have, beginning of verse 7 here, the creation of the universe before all time. And here is a remarkable statement made long before modern science came to this position. God says, I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. Now, Zoroastrianism that arose in that area over there in Persia, and it's the religion in India today, I've always felt if I was not going to be a Christian, I would not identify myself with any of the cults and isms today. But if I wanted to be a heathen, I think I'd become a worshiper of the religion of Zoroastrianism. Now, they teach that Mazda is the God of light. And God says he creates light and that it's no God. But you see, they were getting very close to it. Some have wondered why they came so close to the light and why they worshiped one God in the midst of idolatry. You must remember they came in contact with the nation Israel. And nation Israel was witnessing to the world. And to the worshiper of Zoroaster, darkness was the god of evil, Araman. And God takes responsibility here for the darkness also. And that's interesting. He does not create evil. And may I correct that right here? Evil here is in the sense of sorrow or difficulties or tragedies, that which is the fruit of evil and the fruit of sin. And actually, this is really an Old Testament way of saying, the wages of sin is death. That is, if you do certain things, this is what will happen. And by the way, let me introduce something else right here, because we're living in a day when they say good and evil are relative terms, whatever you think is good, and they put this argument up. Well, the Bible says, Thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal. But what's the Bible? Who should obey it? Who should listen to the God of the Bible? The Lord has another very cogent argument. God says that if you indulge in sin, that sin pays off as payday. It'll be payday someday for you. The minute you indulge in sin, it'll pay off. And pays a good wage, by the way. They don't need a union because you're going to get full when you indulge in sin. And that's what he means here. God says that he has so created the universe that when you break over what he says, you don't need a judge and a hangman's noose or electric chair. God will take care of you. He always does. This is a tremendous section, by the way. And... God says here, therefore, that he is the one that creates light and darkness. He's answering Zoroastrianism. 
they got pretty close to the light. And God says, I want you to know that light is no God. I created it. And this is a marvelous thing. He goes on to speak to him in verse 9, Woe unto him that striveth with his maker. Why fight against God? You're going to lose anyway. The Greeks had a proverb that went something like this, The dice of the gods are loaded. And that's exactly what God says in his word. God says, Don't gamble with me. Don't strive with me. Don't think that you can fight me. Settle your case out of court, as we've already seen in this book. Come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. God says, don't strive with me. You're going to lose. Don't gamble with me, because when I roll the dice, they're loaded. I know exactly how they're coming up, and you don't. So don't gamble with me. I can tell you, you're going to lose. My, this is tremendous. Now, the Lord moves on, makes some other claims. Verse 12, he says, I have made the earth. I created man upon it. I, even my hands, have stretched out the heavens, and all their hosts have I commanded. One thing here that's interesting. God says, I stretched out the heavens. Now, that's no accident. With Sir James Jeans, who was a Christian astronomer in Great Britain, who advanced a theory that today most astronomers follow. And I've noticed that here in Pasadena, some of the men connected with Caltech that work in astronomy, they take this position that you and I live in a universe, as Sir James Jeans called it, and he wrote a book, This Expanding Universe. gets bigger every minute. These planets and worlds and galactic systems are all moving out away from each other. God says, I stretched out the heavens. That's the way he did it. He hasn't exactly told him just how he did it and how he can take nothing and make something out of it. I don't know. But I don't care what theory that you adopt. If it's evolution, you have to move back to a place where there's nothing and then there's something. And if you tell me how nothing becomes something, then I'll listen to you. Until you can answer that, then you can talk about tadpoles and monkeys all you want to, and I'll just sit there and smile at you because I'm a skeptic. I don't believe you. Now, only God has a reasonable answer. God says, I did it. I created it. And by his fiat word, he brought the universe into existence. By the way, do you have a more intelligent answer for that than God's given to us here in his word? Now, we come down to the third division here, and the continuance of Israel for all time and eternity. God won't let you forget this subject, you see. And he says in this section here, but Israel shall be saved in the Lord. With an everlasting salvation ye shall not be ashamed, nor confounded world without end. God says, yes, I'm going to judge you. You're going to Babylon. You're going to be judged. You're going to return to the land. That won't end at all because your rebellion will still be in your heart. But God says, I'm going to save you ultimately. Tremendous statement. And now he sends out the invitation to them then. It was wide open. It's open today. Verse 22, 
Look unto me, and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God, and there's none else. Did you know this was the verse that was used in the conversion of Mr. Charles Spurgeon? He went one morning to a church because it was a snowstorm in London. He couldn't make it to his. He stopped at this little church, and even the preacher didn't make it there. And a man got up, and Spurgeon never did know just what the man's trade was. He only knew he was a very ignorant man. He says this man took this as his text that morning, and what he lacked in lightning, he made up with thunder. He got up and he said, now, this verse says, "...look unto me, and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth." And he began to talk about that. He says, now, all God says for you to do is to look to him and be saved. And by that time, the man, he had run out of ammunition. He'd said all he could say about it. So he moved to the thunder department, and he had no more lightning. So he began to roar and pound the pulpit. He says, look to God, all ye ends of the earth, and be saved. And he looked way back in the back, and he saw this little fella, young fella Spurgeon, sitting there very miserable. And he said, young man, you look very miserable. You look to Jesus, and you'll be saved. And Spurgeon, who is, by the way, a very brilliant man, Spurgeon says, I looked to Jesus, and I was saved. Marvelous verse, by the way. Still good today, in case you want to look. Chapter 46 now, we have the defeat of the idols of Babylon, the declaration to Israel of salvation, and a denunciation of pan-idolatry, that is, all idols, now, he says here at the beginning, judgment against the idols of Babylon. Baal boweth down. Now, Baal and Nebo are the gods here of Babylon. Baal is the shortened form of Baal. And we get the word Beelzebub from that. And Beelzebub is Satan, you see. And Nebo means speaker or prophet. And when Paul, you remember, and Barnabas went over to the Galatian country, they took Barnabas for Baal or Jupiter, and Paul for Nebo or Mercury, for he's the one did the talking, you see. And we are warned today that our warfare is a spiritual warfare. Actually, back of the idols of that day, there was this awful thing of Satan worship, and that's becoming rather popular in our day. Now we have here, beginning with verse 3, the promise of salvation by Jehovah. And he's speaking of idolatry. Now listen to him. Hearken unto me, O house of Jacob, and all the remnant of the house of Israel, which are born by me from the belly, which are carried from the womb. Now God says here, I have been carrying you, Israel, like a woman carries a child in her womb. Listen to verse 4. I, and even to your old age, I am here, and even to your whore hairs will I carry you. I have made, and I will bear. Even I will carry, and I'll deliver you. Now, this is a real distinction between that which is true and that which is false. And I'd like to ask you the question, does your religion carry you, or do you carry your religion? That's important. God says, I carry your sins. He hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. And he also carries our care, our burdens, casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. 
And then God carries us today. The eternal God is thy refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms, and he shall thrust out the enemy from before thee, and shall say, destroy them. God says, I'm carrying you. And today he says that to you and me. Now notice what he says here about idolatry as he continues. To whom will ye liken me and make me equal and compare me that we may be like? You see, the one thing the Lord Jesus did, he not only redeemed man, but he revealed God when he came down here. That's the only way we can know God. Now he tells about how they make the idol. Here he goes again. This is a brilliant, may I say, a brilliant satire on idolatry. They lavish gold out of the bag. They weigh silver in the balance. Hire a goldsmith, and he maketh it a god. They fall down, yea, they worship. Now, they make a metallic image that excels the wooden image in beauty and value. And the wealth of the man is expended in making an idol. In other words, if you don't have much, you have a cheap god. If you're rich, you have a rich god. And actually, it amounts to men worship their own workmanship. They're worshiping themselves. It's a form of humanism, by the way. Now, here is the real test. Listen to it. They bear him upon the shoulder. They carry him and set him in the place, and he standeth. They lug their guard around on their shoulder and put him in the corner when they get home. Now, listen to what God says to them. He says, verse 9, "...remember the former things of old, for I am God, there's none else. I am God, and there's none like me, declaring the end from the beginning." And God says here that I carry you. What a difference, my friend. God says, I carry you. Now, I come to the 47th chapter of Isaiah. And this is a very remarkable chapter because now, for the third time, we have here a judgment upon Babylon. And the subject of this chapter is the decline and fall of Babylon. First in chapters 13 and 14, there was the burden of Babylon. Then in chapter 21, and now here in chapter 47. Now, it's true that we had a suggestion of it back in the last chapter, chapter 46, and I called attention to that. For that chapter opened with God's judgment upon the idols. In verse 1 of chapter 46, he said, Baal boweth down Nebo stupid. The idols were upon the beasts and upon the cattle. And Baal, of course, is the shortened form of Baal. And it's in the word Beelzebub. And Beelzebub is Satan. And that was the god of Babylon. And Babylon is the fountainhead and the mother of all idolatry. I would recommend again to you Hislop's book, The Two Babylons, of how all idolatry began in Babylon. And sometime when we have a chance, I'm going to briefly review that. Because through the prophets, there's a great deal said about drunkenness and idolatry. They were the two things that'll carry any nation away. And then, of course, Nebo here means the speaker, the prophet, and that became the god Mercury among the Romans. 
And they thought, you remember, Paul was Mercury when he went into the Galatian country. Now, here in chapter 47, this judgment upon Babylon seems far related from us today. And because there was a judgment upon it in that day, and Babylon is to be rebuilt, obviously in another location, but it's still Babylon, and it's to be built on the Euphrates River. The old Babylon is 14 miles from it today, but it will be rebuilt and it'll be judged. And someone is apt to say, well, how in the world can that have any message for us today? Well, it does have a spiritual message for us today. The Babylon of the past lies under the rubble and the ruins of judgment. Its glory is diminished by the accumulated dust of the centuries, and there is this Babylonian tendency today in the political realm of the world. It's seen in the United Nations. Babylon, the place where there comes together all of the political power of the world will finally be there under the man of sin, the willful king, Antichrist. And then there is the great commercial combine that's coming to pass. We see it today in the nations of Europe. And then this great religious combine that's working itself out in the World Council of Churches. Now, here we see it actually in miniature, in a way, and yet on a tremendous scale in ancient Babylon. And so we have here in the first five verses the decline of Babylon. Now, the verse here is verse 1, "...come down and sit in the dust, O virgin daughter of Babylon. Sit on the ground, there's no throne, O daughter of the Chaldees." for thou shalt no more be called tender and delicate. Now, the word here for come down is the same word that is used for a dog when you call him for obedience. You say, down, Rover, down, down, Fido, and the dog then sits down. And that's interesting. That's the way God says this great world power You'll just treat it like that when the time comes for it to be brought low. He says, down, down, Fido, down, Babylon. And that's the way, actually, the Lord Jesus dealt with the storm on the little Sea of Galilee. And believe me, they still have storms on that little Sea of Galilee. A friend of mine suggested that on a pretty bad day that we take a trip out on that little sea. I told him I'm not about to go out there because there's too many lessons of the past. Wait for a nice, clear day when it's smooth sailing to get on that little sea. But you remember what the Lord Jesus said when he spoke to those waves? The literal of it is, be muzzled. In other words, like you put a muzzle on a dog. That is the way he spoke to it. Now, you have that same thing here. Now, Babylon is called a virgin. And why? At this stage, she had never been captured by an enemy. Babylon was just now coming to power. Babylon that went back to even Nimrod, to Babel, where the Tower of Babel was. And all of those ziggurats that are in that valley 
apparently were patterned after the Tower of Babel. And then he speaks of the tremendous humiliation of this place of Babylon. Verse 2, "...take the millstones and grind meal, uncover thy locks, make bare the leg, uncover the thigh, pass over the rivers." This is the indescribable humiliation to which Babylon was finally subjected. And she had treated and mistreated Israel and Jerusalem when she destroyed that city. Now, the day will come when she will be humiliated and brought low. And it's a question of nudity here. Now, nudity is becoming a rather popular sort of thing today. Men play with that subject of nudity like a child playing with a new toy as if it was something that they shouldn't be doing, but since it's so new, they are playing with it today. And as a result, all of this interest in that sort of thing actually degrades humanity. Because if you take sex away from the nude body of either a man or a woman, it wouldn't be pretty. You can be sure of that. And it was no accident that God said you're to wear clothes. And any person today that wants to go without clothes, he has a hang-up and a real hang-up, you may be sure. These that like to do that sort of thing are real candidates for a psychiatrist. So that this would be awful humiliation for them. And in verse 3, he continues that, "...thy nakedness shall be uncovered, yea, thy shame shall be seen." And God says, "...I'll take vengeance." Now, when you come down to verse 6, here you see the deliverance of Israel into the hands of Babylon. And God's making it clear to them that the reason that Babylon was able to take his people was because God permitted it, not because Babylon was so superior or such a great power. They gave themselves credit, and they were wrong because of it. Listen to verse 6. I was wroth with my people. I have polluted mine inheritance and given them into thine hand. Thou didst show them no mercy. Upon the ancient hast thou very heavily laid thy yoke. Now, God delivered his people into the hand of Babylon because they'd sinned against him. And he's judging his own people. And this we'll see later in the prophecy of Habakkuk is the great message of that prophecy. Now, God's judgment of his people deceived Babylon. They thought they were smart and clever and strong. And God says in verse 7, "...thou saidest." I shall be a lady forever, so that thou didst not lay these things to thy heart, neither didst remember the latter end of it. Therefore hear now this, thou that art given to pleasures, that dwellest carelessly, that sayest in thine heart, I am, and none else beside me. I shall not sit as a widow, neither shall I know the loss of children. And Babylon was arrogant. Babylon was lifted up, and Babylon was careless. And as that man, Nebuchadnezzar the king, and he had a hang-up, mental problem. And he looked over that city one evening, beautiful city, glorious city, 
And he says, this is great Babylon that I have built. And he gave God no credit. God sent him out to eat grass like the oxen of the field. Man had a form of amnesia. I think the psychiatrist would call it hysteria today. And this man did not know for a long time who he was and lived like an animal because he'd been living that way a long time. God's judgment upon him. Now, the third division I've made here, the details for the destruction of Babylon. Verse 10, For thou hast trusted in thy wickedness. Thou hast said, None seeth me. Thy wisdom and thy knowledge, it hath perverted thee. And thou hast said in thine heart, I am and none else beside me. That's always a grave danger of a nation and for any man to be lifted up by pride and to feel like that he's able to make it on his own. And you and I are living in a country today that men become rich, not because they are doing some great service for mankind or making a contribution but they are in some area where actually it brings men down instead of building them up. Today, think of the millions that's being made through entertainment, entertainment in physical and athletic events. So I know that steps on a lot of toes. And also money that's made through entertaining folk, through shows, nightclubs, that type of thing doesn't build people up. It tears them down. And think of the multitudes that are being wrecked by liquor, alcohol. Well, I have a clipping I took out of a San Diego paper, the first of 1972. I keep this clipping. Ten million dollars a year business in the San Diego area. But there are 117 problem drinkers at one bank in that city. And they've lost money, by the way. And they found out that a vice president made loans he should not have made. A man that had been a very clever and brilliant banker. And there are other businesses that they list here. And the number of problem drinkers. So the next time that you see a number of liquor places that pay big license, remember, they don't even pay for what they are doing to humanity. What a picture that you have here, trusting in wickedness. And we are in many questionable businesses as a nation, and our methods are not always honorable methods. And how we cover this thing up, God sees it. And God will judge, just as he did Babylon. Now you have the dilemma of Babylon here at verse 12 through the rest of this chapter here. They say, stand now, verse 12 I'm reading, stand now with thine enchantments, with the multitude of thy sorceries, wherein thou hast labored from thy youth. God satirically urges Babylon to go back to their witchcraft. They trusted it, and it got them in trouble now. And he says, all right, you've trusted this thing. It's got you in trouble. Why don't you trust it? Why don't you rest in it? And therefore, they become confused 
Verse 13, Thou art wearied in the multitude of thy counsels. This party suggests this, the other party something else. And what happens? Well, the city now is living up to its name. Babylon means confusion, and confusion besets them. The great city that depended on its great economic strength, its total gross product was great in that day. But something had happened to the nation. It is dying within. You and I living in a country, the total gross product is in the billions. But something's wrong. And we won't face up to it. It's moral today. It's the fact that this country has departed from the living and true God. What a picture you have here. You say that this ancient nation that seems so unrelated to us, hasn't a message for us? Why, the stones of the debris of Babylon is crying out to us. Now, in chapter 48, God has cast away Israel, but Israel is going to be saved. And you have here the last call that he gives to the house of Jacob here in chapter 48. In the first 11 verses, now verse 1. Hear ye this, O house of Jacob, which are called by the name of Israel, and are come forth out of the waters of Judah, which swear by the name of the Lord, and make mention of the God of Israel, but not in truth, nor in righteousness. Now, there are those that like to say that Judah and Israel are different. God contradicts you when you make that statement. He says, Hear, O house of Jacob. You come forth out of the waters of Judah, and you're called by the name of Israel. That's who you really are. Don't try to change the name that God has given to them, my beloved. Now, the whole house of Israel is addressed here, and they belong to the line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that apostate nation at that time and today should listen to this final injunction to turn back to God. And the solution over yonder today is not turning to the United States. It's not turning to Russia. It's not turning to the Arab nations. It's turning to God. That's the solution for them. It's the solution for us. And in that day, they had a form of godliness, but they deny the power thereof. They have a religion without any strength at all. Now, they call themselves of the holy city and stay themselves upon the God of Israel. The Lord of hosts is his name. They boast that they're citizens of Jerusalem, boast that they actually are the chosen of God, but they're strangers to him. They don't know him at all. And verse 4 here, God says, "...because I knew..." that thou art obstinate, and thy neck is an iron sinew, and thou brow brass. At the very beginning, when he took them out of Egypt, God says, I knew all the time you were stiff-necked people. Friends, God did not choose them because they were superior, and God did not choose us because we are superior. God chose us because of his grace, because he saw our great need. What a picture that you have here in this. And now, in the second division of this chapter, you have the longing call of God to the remnant of Israel. 
Listen at verse 12. Hearken unto me, O Jacob and Israel, my called, my chosen. I'm he, I'm the first, I also am the last. God now is pleading with the nation. And I drop down to verse 15. I, even I, have spoken. Yea, I have called him. I brought him, and he shall make his way prosperous. This is the heart cry of God to these people. Now notice verse 16. Come ye near unto me, hear ye this. I have not spoken in secret from the beginning, from the time that it was. Here am I, and now the Lord God in his Spirit hath sent me. And it's Isaiah now that becomes God's messenger, and he's pleading with him. And as he pleads with him, you hear the Lord Jesus Christ. Dalich said this, "...since the prophet has not spoken in his own person before, whereas on the other hand these words are followed in the next chapter by an address concerning himself from that servant of Jehovah who announces himself as the restorer of Israel, light of the Gentiles, and who cannot be therefore either Israel as a nation or Isaiah here." It can be none other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. What a picture that we have here. Now, God never has been able to bless the nation Israel to the fullest of his promise. And you and I have never been blessed as much as God would like to bless us. Whose fault is it? God's? No. It's yours and mine, as it was the nation Israel. He said in verse 19, "...thy seed..." also had been as the sand, the offspring of thy bowels like the gravel thereof. His name should not have been cut off nor destroyed from before me. Then he concludes this section as the three sections of this last major division of Isaiah concludes. Verse 22, There is no peace, saith my God, unto the wicked. And my friend... If you're away from God living in sin and you can have peace today, and if you could make peace in the world, you contradict the Word of God. I don't mind saying that because we have about five or six thousand years of recorded history, and man away from God has never had peace. No individual can have it. Now, friends, we have come here to another division in the book of Isaiah, chapter 49. Now, there were, as we said at the beginning, three major divisions. In the first 35 chapters, it was judgment, and that was divided up, as we saw in many ways. Then there was the historic interlude, chapters 36 and 39. And then the great subject of salvation, are the revelation of the Savior in the place of suffering, chapters 40 through 66. Now, the first thing that we saw was the salvation of Jehovah, and that was in the 40 to 48. Now, we have labeled it, because we believe it's very accurate to labor it, the comfort of Jehovah and it comes through the servant, the Lord Jesus. Now, that's been in chapters 40 through 48 that we've looked at, and we've seen here that great polemic against idolatry that was prevalent in that day. 
Now, beginning here with chapter 49 and going through 57, we have the salvation of Jehovah, which comes through the suffering servant. And then finally, when we get to chapter 58 through 66, we'll see the glory of Jehovah, which comes through the suffering servant. Now, each one of these last three divisions can be marked off at the place where God says, as he did in chapter 48 at verse 22, "...there is no peace, saith my God, under the wicked." Now, that is something that I think is patently evident today. Man's history is a history of warfare and constant conflict going on. And you will find that this is true today, not only among nations... It's true among cities. They call it, of course, their competition. You find it in the business world. You find it in the social world. And you find it today in the religious world. There is this conflict that is going on. And I think that you'll find it in practically every neighborhood, in every town and hamlet of our country and of every country, and you'll find it in many homes. This conflict, no peace, saith my God, to the wicked. Now, if you can make peace in the human heart apart from God as a wicked man, then you will contradict the Word of God. So far, no one has been able to do it. Now, that makes this essentially an important section. Now, as we begin chapter 49 here, it's the salvation of Jehovah. And we are now beginning to move toward the definite revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ as the suffering servant of God. We have been moving from actually the very beginning, but we saw him as the servant who brings comfort to God's people. And it's rather a silhouette. It's in the background. And we don't see too much of it. The closer we get to chapter 53, where we have that wonderful revelation of the cross of Christ, then more and more will he become clear to us. Now, at first, Israel was the servant of Jehovah. But Israel failed. Now God is going to begin to speak to us of another servant, and that servant is the Lord Jesus Christ. And you'll find in the prophetic scriptures that they spoke primarily of Israel, and yet the final meaning was found in the person of Christ. Now, I think a classic illustration of that is in Hosea 11.1, 1, where it's recorded, when Israel was a child, then I loved him and called my son out of Egypt. Now, in Matthew 2.15, that's fulfilled in Christ. The nation failed, and now the one that came out of the nation is the one that succeeded. Now, we have here in the first seven verses of this chapter the discourse of Christ to the world. And I want you to listen to this. Because as you listen, you are listening in on a discourse of the Lord Jesus Christ 
as truly as the twelve apostles listened to him in Galilee. In this chapter, we see Christ moving out to become the Savior of the world. And in that movement, Israel is not forsaken, for her assured restoration to the land is reaffirmed here. So that we have in the first seven verses the discourse of Christ to the world. And then verses 8 through 21, the discussion of Jehovah with Israel regarding their restoration. And then verses 22 through 26, that's a digression concerning the judgment of Israel's oppressors. Now, I left the high point out of each, but this first one is rather important. This is the discourse of the Lord Jesus Christ to the world. And friends, there is nothing to correspond to it in the religions of this world. Here is one that's looking at a world, and he is looking at it as the servant of God who's come as the Savior of the world. Every religion is confined to an ethnic group or to several ethnic groups. They were not worldwide. None of them moved beyond the borders generally of a tribe or a people or a nation so that most deities were local deities. But the deity in the Word of God is the living God, the creator of the universe and the Redeemer of mankind. That makes this unique indeed. Now I'm reading verse 1, chapter 49. Listen, O isles, unto me, and hearken, ye people, from far. The Lord hath called me from the womb, from the bowels of my mother hath he made mention of my name. Now Christ here is calling upon the nations of the world to hear. And he was given the name of Jesus before he was born. And this name is to be proclaimed to the world because it's the name of the Savior, and the world needs the Savior. Listen to verse 2. And he hath made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand hath he hid me, and made me a polished shaft in his quiver, hath he hid me. Now, the sharp sword that went out of his mouth is the word of God. And the estimation of his enemies when the Lord Jesus was here is, never man spake as he spake. And the book of Revelation closes with this one coming and out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword that with it he should smite the nations. It's the judgment, you see, of the nations by the word of God. And notice the identification. And he said unto me, Thou art my servant, O Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Now, this will be true of the nation Israel, and it is true of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this is a remarkable statement in verse 4. Then I said, I've labored in vain, I've spent my strength for naught and in vain, yet surely my judgment is with the Lord and my work with my God. Now, though he was rejected, and it may look as if he labored in vain, his confidence is in God, 
And even the death of the Lord Jesus was a victory. In fact, it's the greatest victory up to now that the world has seen. And the emphasis, therefore, in this section is on the suffering servant. And at his first coming, he did not gather Israel because they rejected him. But he did something far more wonderful. He wrought salvation for the world. And therefore, God's purposes were not thwarted by man's little machinations. And listen in verse 5, Therefore, and now saith the Lord that formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob again to him, though Israel be not gathered, yet shall I be glorious in the eyes of the Lord, and my God shall be my strength. And friends, I submit this to you as being one of the most remarkable passages in the Word of God. And these are passages that unfortunately are not looked at very often by God's people. Now, verse 7, "...thus saith the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and His Holy One, to him whom man despiseth, to him whom the nation abhorreth, to a servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise, princes also shall worship, because of the Lord that's faithful and the Holy One of Israel, and he shall choose thee." Now, you remember Paul put it like this, that if the fall of them be the riches of the world and the diminishing of them the riches of the Gentiles, how much more their fullness. In other words, he says if the rejection of Israel meant a gospel that went to the ends of the earth, think what it's going to be someday when God does regather them.